morning North Shore. The, uh, as we're in this study of Luke right now, and one of the things that this study hopefully is going to help correct is certain misconceptions about Jesus and biblical history. And uh, for instance, I want to just clarify, Jesus was not a white Anglo. Okay? Even, even the picture that we showed, you know, that was on the front of Time magazine. And, uh, you know, this was, if this was a surprise to you, if you're sitting there going, wait a minute, he's not? That's right. Um, my, my son had the big reveal uh, this week as we were talking about this. Cambria had the magazine that I showed you, the Time magazine at home. And uh, she, she says to me, Dad, is this, is this really what Jesus looks like? I said, no, he was not a white guy, okay? He was not a white guy. That was a European influence. I, sounds like I'm ringing. Am I ringing? Okay. I'll yell if you want to turn down. Uh, but then all of a sudden, I look over and Jaron's got this huge, this look on his face. Like, he's not? That's not what he looks like? So if you're in that same boat, that's okay. But we want to clear that up. And uh, this was kind of similar to the shock and awe of one of our Master's Commission students that we had. So 18, 19 years old, right in there. And they realized that even though you might be led to believe that Alaska and Hawaii are right next to each other on the map, they're not. They're not. You mean they're not? You mean one's tropical and one... Okay. You were there too? All right. That's cool. Little geography lesson. So we're learning all kinds of stuff, aren't we? This is great. Let me throw up a little map. Uh, Courtney, throw this, throw that up there. This map is just a little picture of the, uh, the Holy Land uh, kind of blown up. And you see the, the area that Jesus grew up in. So you have the Mediterranean Sea and uh, Judea, Canaan, the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee uh, toward the top. And uh, so that's kind of a, a blow up there of the area that we're focusing on. So after last week's introduction, we're into the text uh, this morning and into full swing here in our series. So this is going to be good. But we're answering the question continually as we go, who do you say that I am? That is what Jesus challenged the, his listeners with. He challenged those closest to him. I love what Rod was saying this morning, this season of beginnings. That's a perspective. Because you could look at, there's in, with a number of things coming to an end, you could look at that and say, oh, man, it's like, what is going on? And it seems like things are just shaking so much. And uh, what, what do we do in the midst of all this? But to announce as we are in this time of Advent, He's coming. It was a season of beginnings. This is not coincidence. This is not coincidence. This time of transition. This time of new life. And that new life from a spiritual standpoint comes through what we talked about this morning as John hailed, John the Baptist as we read the scripture this morning. John's message, his declaration was, he's coming, prepare him room through repentance. And we can have a tendency to really shy away from that. It's like, oh man, that makes me feel really bad. Well, you know what's way worse is not repenting. Having to live with the weight 
of unconfessed sin and and uh, those things in our lives. And this is a traditionally in the church, historically in the church, this season of Advent is a time of preparing Him room. Every heart cleansing, purifying, letting Holy Spirit come and identify various areas in our lives. So that's really, really important. But we're going to be challenged. Um, Jesus is going to challenge all of us directly with this question, who do you say that I am? Because we all have our Sunday school or media type of impressions in our mind about who and what Jesus was about. So Holy Spirit, we're coming to you again as we always do. And we just say we're here for you to do with what you will. Uh, Our minds and our hearts help us see what we're not able to see. Illuminate what you have been showing us in Jesus' name. This question, who do, you say I am, who do you say I am, evaluates us in every way. In terms of our thoughts, our choices, our decisions. Who we say He is affects every way that we live. A couple ways that we're going to approach this series. First of all, exegetically. An exegesis or reading, reading out of the Scriptures what they're really saying as opposed to what can um, we, we always have a temptation to do, which is to read into the Scriptures what we want them to mean. So we pull up various things and we say, you know, this and this. Oh, I really like that one. That sounds great. And oh, man, that just mm, makes me feel warm inside. And we realize if we really get into it, that's not what that is saying at all. That was not what the author intended. That's not what God was saying. We don't understand the historical context. And that's why we talk about we never read just a verse. We never read just a verse. We don't just read a verse and go, oh, what a wonderful promises God has made. Go back and look at the context, for instance, of Jeremiah 29.11. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, go read the context. Read the whole chapter and find out what kind of plan he had for them. That was not an exciting plan. Check it out. Do some research on that one. Also, we want to draw application as we're going through this study and always in God's Word. We, we understand that God's Word is both timeless and timely. Timeless and timely. That's something I stole from John Stott. But it's eternal in its scope and it's able to speak to our lives today, right now. I'm going to be reading various things. We're going to be going through portions of Scripture. And God is, Holy Spirit's going to help you to apply that to your life right now. And you're going to, you're going to have a takeaway. Charles Spurgeon, famous English preacher, he said this, I preach the Word of God I preach with the Word of God in one hand and the newspaper in the other. That's an amazing statement. The Word of God, timeless, but it's timely because it applies to what we're going through. The, in early America, early colonists, they believed that it was the bane of the church. It was, it was the worst thing possible if they had preachers that could not take the Word of God and apply it to everyday life. By the grace of God, may we be able to accomplish that because it's all of life 
from economics to science, from relationships to politics, everything comes under the umbrella of God's kingdom. So this is a tall order to live up to, but we'll get there. Let me read a statement. I I heard uh, Mark Driscoll say this, and I'm just paraphrasing him, but all of human history points to Jesus. And we've been saying that everything points to Him. God is sovereign. He rules over all times. Nations, languages, cultures, races, classes, and genders of people. Everything works according to His plan. He is not the author of sin. He is altogether good. But He is so powerful that He will even use sin for His purposes. He's so powerful that He will even use sin for His purposes. For example, He allowed Judas to betray Jesus so that our sins might be forgiven. God loves us. He's actively at work for good in the lives of all of His people. Amen. Amen. Well, let's kick this off here in our study. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. Most honorable Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? Anybody know who Theophilus is? Theophilus is? Theo. Theo. Yes, he is. He's Theo. That's right. Theophilus is obviously the audience. It's the guy that, that uh, Luke is writing to. Luke's a Greek. Remember, he's a medical doctor. He's very learned. And he's writing to his friend. And he's describing these various things. And it's, it's really cool to point out, if you look at his name, Theophilus means lover of God. So as we are going through this, we're reminded that God took time to write a book or an account to the lovers of God. Any lovers of God in here? Okay, this is to you. And the point of this is to strengthen you and to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. He's going to say here, as we get into verse 1, many people have written accounts about the events that took place among us. They used as their source material the reports circulating among us from the early disciples and other eyewitnesses of what God has done in fulfillment of His promises. Having carefully investigated, notice that, this medical doctor, having carefully investigated all of these accounts from the beginning, I have decided to write a careful summary for you to reassure you of the truth of all you were taught. To assure you of the truth of all you were taught. So, here's what I want to focus on today. Is that... This is, of course, our our study of Luke here. And we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 20, is what we're going to try and get through today. And uh, I want to call this first one, Lovers and Skeptics. Lovers and Skeptics. I love this because this letter directed to lovers of God like us, but also God is also welcoming the skeptics. The ones who are struggling with believing. Maybe those who are still yet far from God. And he's saying, you know what? There's plenty, of room, there's plenty of room in here for all of you. So the lovers on this end, the skeptics on this side, and everybody in between, the invitation is there. 
That is a great invitation. Skeptics have a very special place in Father's heart. And though Theophilus was a a lover of God by his name, there was a convincing or a persuasion here that you see in the way Luke is writing this. I've, I've checked in with all the eyewitnesses. Luke himself was not an eyewitness of the things that he wrote about. He was basing it upon first-hand testimonies of those who did have their eyes right on Jesus throughout this process. God's okay with the disillusioned, with the broken, uh, the ones who may be in a place of struggling because maybe blaming God for the pain that they're going through. He's okay with that. He's bigger than all those things. And He invites them to the table as well. God never expects us to just blindly obey Him or believe. I mean, you see it right in here, this this challenge of, hey, I'm going to present everything to you. And obviously, he's wanting to go beyond just the intellectual aspect of what he's sharing. And believe me, we're going to get there. We're challenged to investigate Jesus and Jesus' claims thoroughly. What Jesus declares about himself should be considered carefully because they're costly. There's a price tag associated with them. It's a matter, literally, of life and death. And when it comes down to that, not just in this life, but eternally, that should make us sit up and pay attention to what those claims are. Because He makes claims that no one else has ever made nor will ever make. It's important here as well, you're going to see Holy Spirit, uh, which in, so his next account, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke is, of course, Acts. And it's in there that we see the Holy Spirit come on the scene and how he he comes into people's lives and completely changes them. Well, we're going to get this preview of what the Holy Spirit, when he first enters the stage and uh, he's saying many have tried to compose an account of what has happened. In other words, there were many different ones, uh, various um, um, followers of Jesus, people who liked Him, people who hung around, and they tried to write their various accounts, but they were never canonized. Because it wasn't till later, Origen, one of the early patristics, he said, he said that those trying to compose an account, he said this was an indictment that Luke was making against those who rushed into writing Gospels without the infilling and grace of Holy Spirit. This helps to answer why there, may be, why there was a gap, perhaps, between the, what happened when Jesus uh, came, died, and was resurrected and the accounts that we're going to read about and the time that they were actually written in. Because there was time between then and when the Holy Spirit came on the scene. So they were incapable of writing the things that they needed to write without the infilling life of the Holy Spirit. 
What does that say to us? Don't leave home without Him. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything without the leading of the Holy Spirit in whatever you're doing. So, verse 5. Different times we're going to read portions of Scripture. Other times we're going to... Uh, we're just going to paraphrase and I'll be telling you kind of what happened. But as we said, I trust that you're going to be in this story yourself as we're going through this. I have read through chapter 1, verse 1 through 220 uh, quite a few times now as I've been studying this and going through it. And it, it is just, it's, it's super good, very enriching. So then there's an angel that comes and to a priest named Zachariah. Zachariah is in... The, uh, he was an elderly priest who worked in the temple. He and his wife Elizabeth were known as righteous in God's eyes. And they were never able to have children. Elizabeth was barren. 11, verse 11 through 20, Zechariah was in the temple fulfilling his priestly role. He was offering incense to the Lord in prayer. And I'm paraphrasing. And an angel appears to him. Sometimes when we read through these things, we're just like, yeah, an angel appeared to him. That's cool. He freaks out. I mean, it, it says right in here, Zechariah was overwhelmed with fear. Okay, eyewitness account, you know, he's sitting down with Zechariah. So what happened when the angel appeared to you? Um, I was overwhelmed with fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. He may have had to clean the priestly shorts afterward and... I'm not kidding. I mean, to be able to, I'm not, I'm just trying to be funny. I mean, we're, we're talking about a fear. I've never seen an angel before. I've never seen that, that type of, uh, you know, spiritual being that was not necessarily bodily. Maybe he was, but he saw whatever he saw and this thing started talking to him. So I want to make sure that as we're going through, we don't let those things just pass by. This is some serious stuff here. Verse 13. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Yeah, right. For God has heard your prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to name him John. John means God is gracious. You're going to name him John because I'm going to infuse this world with my grace. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice with you at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. And he must never touch wine or hard liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will persuade many Israelites to turn to the Lord their God. And he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, the prophet of old. He will precede the coming of the Lord, preparing the people for his arrival. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and He will change disobedient minds to accept godly wisdom. Wow. A, no small task uh, there that He was assigned with. John will be great in the eyes of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, as I thought about my own kids and what my desires are for them, are for them and thinking about just us as parents, what's a, you know, what's a takeaway from this? And I thought about what, what, what is my goal? What is my priority? How do I actually live things out? Not what I say with my mouth or, or have good intentions about, but do I value more how the world sees my children 
or how God sees my children. He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Seems like that should be a parental goal for all of us, shouldn't it? That he will be, he, she will be great in the eyes of the Lord. You know what? There was a price tag associated that, associated with that. No liquor, no wine, you know, these different things. He was calling him to a Nazarite vow. Consecration. The things of the world were not to be allowed to infuse him and take distract him from who he was called to be. The Holy Spirit was going to do this in his life. And none of these things that he mentions, interestingly enough, are are wrong things, morally wrong. But they were things that uh, the question would be, what is the priority? Holy Spirit, what are you calling? What is your, your end goal for my kids in this? So as a result of him questioning and not believing what the angel said to him, what happened to him? Yeah, cat got his tongue. He was not able to speak until the birth of his son, John. I love this. In terms of God's usefulness, especially in our culture today, where the older generation is often looked at as uh, non-useful and the, the, the throwaways of a culture and uh, the ones that are looked at as non-contributing factors. And here you see God again valuing just as He does with children and women. He comes to the elderly and He says, I'm going to use you to birth something. I'm going to, I'm going to use you to make an announcement. I'm going to use you to call a generation to consecration. Come on, that's powerful. There's no retirement in the kingdom from being a voice for God to use. Right, John Nystrand? That's right. Lee Ray, Louise, no retirement in the kingdom of God. Being a voice that God can use to call a generation. Oh, I love that. I love that. It says he was righteous in the eyes of God. That he followed the law. But you know, this is an indication of the old covenant, of the old way of doing things, of living by performance, of living by our own righteousness in a sense. Even God acknowledged him as righteous, but no matter how good of a person we are, no matter um, how many... People we help across the street in Boy Scouts, Todd. It, it doesn't matter how many good things we have done. This is, he's showing here that we are all broken. We are all broken. It's not about what we do. There's not enough self-help programs or anything. It's about what Christ is going to do in and through us. I love that. I love that. Let's move ahead to verse 26. Through 38, we see Mary, and God sends Gabriel to visit Mary. Let's look at um, verse 28 here. Sorry, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, 
a village in Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman! The Lord is with you! Can you imagine the interview process after this one? So Mary, what were you going through? What were you thinking when he said this to you? And it says here in the text, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be frightened, Mary. The angel told her, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son. And you're to name him Jesus. He will be very great and you you and." And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, how can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. Did you not get the memo on this? I'm a virgin, not married. How am I going to become pregnant? The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy. And he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she's already in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Say that with me. Nothing is impossible with God. Come on, Bob, one more time. Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary responded. It's, I, it's tough for me to put myself in this situation. But can you imagine, ladies, getting that type of news? And Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. And I am willing I'm willing to accept whatever He wants. May everything you have said come true. And then the angel left. Mary is... Let's just take a look at Mary for a minute. Mary's a young... She's young. She's poor. She's female. In this culture, that's a lot of strikes against you. This is all these characteristics to the people in her day would probably seem like one of the most unusable people that God could ever use. What does that say about us? How many strikes have you put against yourself about God using you? Even Mary's like, "Um, how are you going to do this? Because I know me. And everybody in here could raise your hand and you say, yeah, yeah, I, I know me. We hear different encouraging words, prophetic words, you know, people give to us and you're just going, mm, yeah, mm-hmm, right. You don't know me. I know me. I know my, my, my history, my background. Um, there is no way this could possibly happen. But God chose Mary for one of the most important privileges he was to give to, ev- to anyone ever. We may feel that our ability, our experience, our failings, our social status, our education or lack of education makes us an unlikely candidate for service to God. 
I love these stories. They're so encouraging to the common minions like us, right? (laughs) The run of the mill, just normal folk. God loves to infuse those types of people with His extraordinary ability. He's looking for someone who's willing to trust Him and obey Him. Look at verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for God has decided to bless you. Be careful next time someone says, God bless you. Blessing in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are, blessed are, right? Blessed are, blessed are. That has to do with the indwelling life of Jesus. I would love for us to be able to, when we say, man, God bless you, that we could really say that with understanding, knowing what it is that we're talking about. When Jesus said those things, He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the, a greater infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their life, of God in their life, as a result of that being poor in spirit. Those desperate for the Lord. These words, God bless you, when we say these things to one another, are not uh, necessarily an indication of earthly success or fame. This blessing would indicate much pain that she would engage in and encounter in her life. I mean, think about it. Her, Her peers, can you imagine the ridicule? A young woman, pregnant, unmarried, like three strikes, you're out. I mean, it's, this, is, this is not a good setup. How do you explain to people how this happened? Right away, people are automatically get the straight jacket, funny farm. Uh, what in the world? You, you got pregnant how? Come on. Her fiancé would come close to leaving her. Her son would be eventually rejected and murdered. God bless you. She would, through her trust and obedience, would become part of God's plan of salvation. He would use her in the most beautiful way to bring the life of Christ into the world. In the same way, God desires to use us to be a vehicle, to be a voice. Her trust and her obedience, so humble, so willing. You can imagine her sitting there thinking through, how, what, how do I explain this to people? How do I... Maybe even through tears. Okay, Jesus, or the angel, what you've said, what you're saying, let it be done unto me that, that, I, that if, if, if I could just be a servant of God to do, I don't understand it all, I don't, I don't get it, but if you desire to use me, then yes, yes. 
Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus was born without the sin that entered the world through Adam. Jesus was born holy. Different than John. John, obviously, Elizabeth became pregnant with Zechariah through their marital intimacy. But not so, says Luke, about Jesus. Because Jesus, or Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. So this was not from man. She became the vehicle. Her womb became the, 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 the container, if you will, for the one that cannot be contained. Do you ever think about that? That's, that's this, this picture of Mary housing the creator of the universe within her. Now start to look at this in your own life. Holy Spirit comes, infuses her with Jesus, the life of Jesus. Paul talks about very similar language. About the Gospel by the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. Regenerating our spirit. Jesus coming into us. And He begins to grow inside of us. In our spirit. Growing in faith. Growing in believing God. And through, through as He permeates into all of our life, our being, our, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, everything about us, that's the picture of Christ-likeness coming to greater and greater reality in and through our lives. In contrast to Adam who disobeyed God, Jesus obeyed God. Through His obedience, Jesus restored us to Father through His sinless sacrifice, forgiving our sins. Come on, let's not get familiar with this stuff here. As Adam was originally created immortal, through Jesus, paradise would be reopened. Paradise was closed. The Garden of Eden closed to Adam and Eve because of their sin. It would be reopened through Jesus. Immortality, relationship with God would be restored. In Jesus coming to earth, heaven is now open to all of mankind. All those who would receive the indwelling life of Holy Spirit. Wow. Gabriel, the things that they would say in that conversation... For, for her in her thinking, you know, it probably went back in terms of chronologically, in terms of time, history. Her thinking goes back to Adam, even though they knew of God being timeless and all that. But here you have, you will conceive of a son more ancient than Adam. The timeless one will now enter time. You're going to bear him who is without flesh. May everything you have said come true. Be it unto me as you have said. Whoa.
unless her father agreed, or excuse me, unless the, the man that uh, when a young woman would become pregnant and she was unmarried in that culture, unless the, the man agreed to marry her, she would probably remain unmarried for life. This was a huge risk. How would Joseph respond to this? If her father rejected her, she would be forced into begging, maybe even prostitution, for just to be able to live. In spite of all these risks, her response was yes. Let's go to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. See? You see the newspaper in his hand? He's preaching. Okay? This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go where? To Bethlehem. In Judea, David's ancient home, he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was obviously pregnant by this time. Okay, so Mary's recounting these things, telling him the story about what happened. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly. I like that translation. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn. No one was expecting him to come. No one was prepared. Everybody else has a place to stay, but the master of the universe has no there's no room for him. That night some shepherds were in the fields outside the village. Throw that up in there, Courtney. The, the one with the... No, that's not the one. The one with the sheep. The one with the lamp. There it is! Isn't that cool? I love visual aids. Yeah, so they're... The, the, the night of the shepherds in the fields outside the village and they were guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord... Here we go again. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. Who knows what that... I think that's just code for massive laser light show, big noise, everybody's freaking out. Okay? They were terribly frightened or sore afraid. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, guys. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been, brought, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you will recognize Him. You're going to find a baby lying in a manger wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. Somehow I don't think angels said snugly, but we're rolling with it because that's what it says. He was wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. When Jesus is coming on the scene, the armies of heaven are showing up. 
And they were praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And peace on earth to all whom God favors. Some people were getting woken up. Because this was going to be, this was some loud stuff. The decibel levels of this must have been, you know, uh, you know, Seahawk fans, number 12, eat your heart out. Because these guys were breaking all kinds of records. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, come, come on, let's go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. That was just about to welcome the arrival of the bread of life. Let's see this wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Put the next one of that, uh, that little cave. Next picture. Yep, right here. See, we often think of a manger as a stable. They're saying most likely uh, that uh, when they talk about manger, it was uh, feeding troughs for the animals carved into the side of these caves. So this is a lot less than what I even thought or imagined. But they believe that this was probably the place where Jesus may have been, where he was born. And they're looking at this going, are you sure, God, that this is what you had in mind? First of all, me, I'm looking, he's looking at, she's looking at herself. This housing, this flesh, to be able to carry the Son of God. And there's no room for him. We should be at the, you know, the, the, the Ritz-Carlton or, or something like that or Evergreen Hospital, something super nice with all the... But no. The humble beginnings of God. The humility that God demonstrates and communicates here. Born in a trough to feed animals. Here, the bread of life. All right, we're going to wrap this one up. I got to say one more thing. That picture that we showed of there, the shepherds, you know, and not the shepherds, but the sheep that were out there. And this was, that area right there was likely the area um, where the shepherds who provide, they would, the shepherds would provide lambs for the temple sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. I love the continuity of the Word of God here because the angels would invite them to come and greet the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who would take the sins of the world away forever. And these shepherds, the nobodies, the who cares about them, and yet God would send angels to them. You guys, what is God communicating here? I believe I'm seeing in this and I'm... I'm going to read into it maybe a little bit, but I think it's very clear. There's no one that can say or disqualify themselves from God using them. God reached to the lowest of culture, the lowest of society, and says, I want to use you. I want to set us up for next week here and just share something quickly. But... This, you have a clash this time when Jesus came. He comes on the scene. Historically, you have this clash of two saviors. 
the dictator Caesar Augustus, his name means son of a god, would come to power near the same time that the son of God came on the scene in world history. You have this clash of two saviors, God of this world and Christ. And they're about to go head to head. This clash is no different today. No different today. Rome would eventually give Jesus what they thought that he was due. This barbaric death suitable for enemies of the state. Think about this time in history where a man could, as a ordinary, a matter of ordinary justice, be nailed by his wrists and his ankles onto a timber cross and left to die of suffocation and exposure to wild animals, to all kinds of things. This was an ordinary way of life. The highways leading to Rome and other places were lined with people who were being crucified as a statement of don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with this Savior who has come to conquer people and bring them under His subjection. What a contrast to the King of the universe, the Creator of all things coming to set people free through humble beginnings. Where this crucifixion, breaking legs of the condemned, was an act of mercy to expedite the death. God sent His Son into one of the most needed times in history. We are in a very similar place. Where Jesus keeps coming. He keeps coming. He keeps coming. As we conclude, we come back to the lovers and the skeptics and everybody in between. Lovers of God, this is written to you to deepen your relationship with God, to help you grow. As we investigate here Luke's account to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Uh, for the skeptics, for the ones struggling with different things along the way of believing God, of trusting Him. And as a medical doctor, Luke, he's very highly educated, he would grow in his faith conviction that Jesus is Messiah. I'm not convinced by looking at what he does here that it was instantaneous. He grew into something. That's encouraging to me. Over time, he was convinced of this through investigative research, testimonies. So, what happened in your life? How, how did you come to believe and trust in Jesus? He would ask a lot of people because he says he covered everybody. Just like us today, we all face a decision of faith. There's room for everyone here. No matter where you are. Just like old Zechariah, barren Elizabeth, young Mary, humble shepherds, God comes to anyone with a humble heart enough to receive Him. This is going to be good. We're on a ride. Keep buckling up. This is going to be a lot of fun.
Amen. Amen. Well, as we said, we've, uh, we've got some additional things to be able to share. And uh, I would like to give opportunity for questions if there are any. And, uh, but before I do that, I would like Jeanette Starr to come up here.